You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Sam Floyd. After living in East Africa for three plus years, he is now based in Copenhagen. While in East Africa, he started the East African Business Podcast, which is a podcast about the business environment in East Africa based around the interviews with entrepreneurs, investors, and organizations looking to help the region grow. Today, we talk about what are some of the challenges that entrepreneurs face in Kenya? If a Westerner were to move to Africa to start a business, what does that person need to know to be successful? Where are the opportunities in Africa? This and much more. And don't forget, write a review on iTunes and share this great content with your network. All right. And now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Sam, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we've had venture capitalists from Africa before. We had Nicole Yembra, venture capitalist from Nigeria, and Thelma Ekior. We haven't had any entrepreneurs. We haven't had anyone from Kenya yet. And in fact, your story is absolutely fascinating. So can you give our listeners a little bit of background of your career, your journey up to this point? I originally am from the UK, which you might be able to guess from my accent. After finishing university, I worked at a startup for about four years and then decided that it would be a bit more interesting to go and start a business somewhere else in the world. I was looking for a mix of somewhere developing but still dynamic and I thought East Africa seemed like quite an interesting place to go. So I went and did a try before you buy tour where I spent a month living in Rwanda, a month in Uganda, a month in Kenya, a month in Tanzania before finally deciding that I wanted to live and start a business in Kenya. I was then there for a further two and a half years. During that time, I started a podcast where I interviewed a number of East African entrepreneurs. We'll perhaps talk about some of the stories that they had later in the show. But then I was there in East Africa until about September 2019. And then I moved back to Europe, where I'm calling you from now. I think that I'm by no means an expert or sort of a seasoned professional, should we say. However, what I have done is I've come at this from an outsider's perspective and tried to get a grasp of what are the key moving parts in the East African business ecosystem. I myself have played a part in that to some degree, and I can very much hope to share with the listeners a lot of the exciting opportunities that exist there. When you arrived in East Africa, what was your immediate impression, the business community, just the ecosystem in general? The main thing to say is that when I, was, when I got there, there was a lot going on. Initially, I, when I decided to go to East Africa, I thought, well, I don't really know anything about what's going on in the business scene there. There's no point in me being sat in London, doing some research online and deciding I'm going to do a solar company in Uganda without even going there and understanding what's happening. So I had a friend who was based in Rwanda. So I thought, right, I'll take a one-way flight to Rwanda. I'll stay with him for a month and then I'll spend a month in Uganda, a month in Kenya, a month in Tanzania. And I'll basically try and figure out, is there space here for me to do a business? And if so, what ways can I fit in best into the business ecosystem? If I get to the end of those four months and it's not, then I'll call it a holiday. I'll come back to England and I'll get a proper job. So thankfully, or Thankfully, interestingly, yeah, I got there and there was actually lots, I felt there was lots of opportunities and also lots of places where I could sort of fit in 
as somebody who has learned about startups and sort of worked in companies in the UK. So the first thing was, yes, lots of opportunity, lots of people talking about businesses, lots of, lots of people saying, you know, the startup that I'm doing, these are the opportunities that I'm seeing. But it was also relatively finite in terms of the people who were in the entrepreneurial scene. You could get an introduction to most people. A lot of social life and indeed business life in East Africa happens on WhatsApp. There are lots of WhatsApp groups in various different countries and across the region. Once you sort of got in with that, it was quite easy to, to sort of understand and sort of get introductions to people there. So you're getting introductions to people, being engulfed in the community. While this was happening, what were some of the challenges that the entrepreneurs were facing that you discovered? Well, I think the, there's probably a little step in between. So I think when, you, when I sort of first arrived in the region, it, it's not necessarily immediately obvious how everything works and how everything fits together. For me personally, I was very interested in how can I learn as much as possible about the business ecosystem. And so when I arrived in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, I would quite easily go to a social event, get chatting to people. Oh, you run this type of business, you run that type of business. And I'd sort of think, well, you know, I'd love to, you know, to sit down with you, go for a coffee with you, chat for 30 minutes and pick your brains about how you do business here. But understandably, you're talking to busy entrepreneurs. And they would say, look, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. There's a lot going on with the business, maybe in a few weeks' time or maybe in, you know, sometime in the future. That didn't quite work for me because I was there for... You know, I basically had four weeks per country to evaluate whether, whether what was going on there. I was trying to think, okay, how can I balance the exchange? How can I even out? How can I give back something back rather than simply stealing some 30 minutes of someone's time? So, I mean, like you, Sean, I... Sort of thought, well, I'm, I enjoy listening to podcasts. When I first was thinking about moving to the region, well, I'd searched Africa business podcast and nothing came up. So I thought, well, okay, well, how, how hard is it? A few weeks of Googling and testing out, et cetera. I thought, well, maybe I can start a podcast. And what I can do is go back to those same entrepreneurs and give them publicity to people around the world. Because if I was sat in London searching for African business podcasts, maybe there are other people too. That then became my pitch to local entrepreneurs is, would you like to promote your show? And it's going to be looking for people around the world. I then went and arranged these conversations with these entrepreneurs and basically had the same conversation that I would have had if I was going for a coffee, but there was a microphone in the middle. And so once the recording was done, I then packaged it up and turned it into a podcast. The reason I sort of explained that is that it only took, it was only after tens, you know, dozens and dozens of hours of speaking to lots of different business owners in lots of different areas, irrigation, companies in Rwanda or radio advertisers in Uganda, all kinds of businesses in Tanzania and Kenya, that you really actually begin to understand what are some of the common threads or the, the challenges that, that exist. Now, of course, some are specific to just businesses, but after a while, you begin to see, okay, there are certain characteristics that, that, uh, that emerge. And just even until the, the day that I left Kenya, being in East Africa for over three years, I was still learning of, okay, this is another bit of nuance to, to how business is being done. In answer to your question, though, Sean, I'd say that the two main challenges that I see are some of them are perhaps more, should say, structural, which is it's generally a low trust environment. And so, as a result, the ways that I was used to operating in the UK, you have to have, for example, additional checks and balances for the types of work that you'd be doing. For example, if you were to have a, a remote sales team, in the UK, you might just say, okay, well, 
you know, here's your sales material. Let's catch up. Yeah. And we'll have a weekly call to catch up on how you're doing. In Kenya, a lot of the remote sales team I was working with, if, especially if you're being paid on commission, there's lots of checks and balances that were needed to make sure that kickbacks weren't happening, for example, or kickbacks basically being low-level corruption. The buyer and the seller do some sort of deal which swindles the main company out of the business. The other main one, sort of being quite frank, there, there is a lack of local demand. When we're comparing addressable market, for example, of particular businesses you know, in the US or the UK, you might be able to say, okay, well, I don't know, dog food delivery services. Okay, there are 10 million dog owners in the UK. They spend you know, an average of £30 a month on dog food. Okay, suddenly we've got quite a nice market size. If you're looking at the types of businesses that are based on middle-class consumers in Nairobi and Kenya, you maybe have sort of 100,000 or so. And so straight away, those calculations that you're doing make the, the size of the market a lot, small, yeah, a lot smaller. And then generally that sort of filters through to local businesses. So, so I think the, the two main things are sort of low trust environment and lack of local demand. I love how you mentioned having a podcast got you in front of people. From my experience, this has been the greatest way to sit down with people and get their time that in most situations, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. Now, with these companies that you sat down and you interviewed, can you share some of their stories, what they're working on and enlighten us a little bit about what they're doing? Absolutely. So I should say that in total, I think I've yeah, interviewed about 80 different companies. And I think with a lot of them, you sort of I'd sort of sit down and be like, okay, this is, I kind of get this. This is a job platform, but for, you know, slightly localized to, to East Africa. Those were, were definitely interesting or, you know, a manufacturing company. It's like, okay, this is interesting. And there, there are certain bits of, yeah, certain aspects do sort of strike you as, oh, that is interesting. Or I hadn't really thought of it that way. What I'll perhaps do is go over some examples of companies where the business model has almost had to be invented by scratch. Or it's something where there's a, you know, it sort of highlights bigger sort of theme underlying. For example, the first one I might talk about is a company called Flare. The short version is they are Uber for ambulances. If you are in Nairobi and you want to order an ambulance or you, know, you, you break your leg or someone you know has a heart attack and you need to order an ambulance, in the UK at least, there is one number you call 999 and that takes you through to the, the government run ambulance service and they then send out dispatch for the nearest ambulance. In Kenya, there are 45 different private ambulance companies, which basically means if you are a company, if you, know, if you can buy an ambulance van and you can have some trained, trained medical staff, I think you, have, you might have to get a license. But either way, there is not one number to call. Friends having a heart attack, you might have three or four different ambulance numbers that you you call the first one. They say that they're two, yeah, the nearest one is two hours across town. You call the next one, you end up haggling over the price. What Flair does is they basically aggregated all the different ambulance providers, and then they've done some incredibly smart technology, which basically allows you to, for example, if you're having a cardiac arrest, it will inform the ambulance driver that they should just go to this particular hospital, which has space for them. So a lot of the times before, all this information was just kept in people's heads, and obviously, when you've got emergency healthcare, there's not much margin for error. And so this is just, for me, just a, a phenomenal way of formalizing this informal structure uh, or sort of situation that was going on. And so they, have, they started off on the ambulance side of things, creating that ambulance dispatch platform. 
They've also added the consumer angle now, where if you have the, you know, your friend is having a heart attack, you call Flare. They have a trained medical professional to talk you through some first aid. And then in the meantime, using your phone's GPS, they can relocate, they can allocate the nearest ambulance to go in. So that for me, it's just like fantastic business model. Not the sort of thing which I would have ever really considered would be the, yeah, an opportunity for it. The next one I'll, I'll sort of talk about is a company called Lendable. A short version for them is big data lending. So they're all about how can they make it more attractive for international hedge funds or wealth managers to invest in Africa. A lot of the time, there is a lot of uncertainty around thing, around how it works. So the, the short version is that they do a heap of data analysis and predictions and all sorts of wonderful buzzwords to basically get a validity of effectively risk what it's like to do investments. And then they can go to their partners in London or New York, be investing $25 million into a, a motorbike leasing company in Kenya, for example. That type, you know, if, if, and if that motorbike leasing company was to go to the bank, they wouldn't be able to get that level of funding because the bank would need, I'm going into the weeds here. The fact that they, Lendable have done the big data analysis means that they, um, yeah, they're able to sort of deploy this capital. So with all these companies that you've mentioned so far, the companies themselves, how are they getting the funding, the capital to start to operate? Well, I think when it comes to companies in East Africa, at least, and I imagine in, in, in other parts of the continent, there's, a, there's what I can describe as a layer of impact investing. So there are historically, this would be philanthropy or, or charity. And more and more, it's been trying to, the, the focus has tried to shift away from straight handouts and more into this term impact investing, which is to give money to businesses that have a social impact. A lot of companies, well, they're saying, well, through doing this, we are improving the environment. There will be grant money available for people to basically say, so a, sort of an NGO or a, or a fund would say, we'll give you this money, but you must promise that you're going to improve your economic empowerment. So you're going to give people employment, or you're going to do training, or you're going to do something which is more than just the financial return. But a lot of companies, if they're doing something which is quite good, there's quite a lot of grant money available, also this impact investing money. You're beginning to see as well, local angel network. This is typically investors who've had some wealth, various investments, and they're beginning to sort of dip their toe into, into startup investing and sort of slightly more sort of venture capital angle. And then occasionally there are Maybe this comes a little bit later, but there are uh, options for international funding. So a few companies have been able to raise you know, large amounts of money from the US. Um, in terms of getting started, grant money, local investors, or friends and family is the sort of standard. Now, I've seen a couple of companies from Africa pitch here in Silicon Valley. A startup in Africa wanted to access Silicon Valley or the US market. How would they go about doing that? Well, I think it, it sort of depends where is the focus of the market. So where is the focus of the business? Like who, who are the end consumers that that company is serving? If they're serving African consumers, then I'd basically recommend have a knockout proposition for how this business that they want investment in is going to offer a route for Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley investors to prosper from Africa's development. So the continent is set for incredible growth. There's this huge booming population. And I think a lot of people intellectually get the idea that, okay, in the next 20 years, 
Africa is going to be developing, there's going to be some business opportunities. And so if I was a company that was focusing on the African market and I was pitching for money in the US or elsewhere, I would 100% have that as the narrative. Like this is the big change that we're going to see in the world. And then basically follow all the standard procedures that you'd have when, when doing a pitch. But basically I'd be saying, you know, the key message would be if you want to benefit from the hopefully inevitable growth of Africa, then investing in this business is the way to do it. Okay. And how are the relationships between the startup centers in Africa and those in the US? I can probably speak more to Europe, what it compares like to Europe and I guess a little bit to the US. But the main sort of thing to, to understand about the business ecosystems in Africa are that it's more or less split into North, South, East and West. So Cairo in Egypt in the North, Lagos, Nigeria in the West, Nairobi, Kenya in East Africa, and Johannesburg in the South. And so you'll, you'll generally see a sort of concentration of, of sort of business activity in those regions. Now, of course, that's not where all of the work happens. There's lots of, you know, lots of things happening in Lusaka in Zambia or in, in Kampala in Uganda and in Accra in Ghana. Companies may choose to launch in a second city before they then go to the bright lights of Cairo, Lagos, Nairobi, or Johannesburg. But generally, that's sort of where the concentrations of power are. And my sense is that there's quite a sort of congenial feel between things. So there are, so I've been, for example, for dinners in, in Nairobi, where somebody's invited along their friend who's running a business in Lagos, or somebody's visiting in from Johannesburg. And it's quite, you know, everyone's very interested in, oh, what's it like here? What are some of the challenges you're finding? Do you know any sort of good, good investors, etc.? So I think it's, Generally, that's, that's sort of how, how it all sort of fits together. I interviewed a couple of venture capitalists from Nigeria, I mentioned, Delma Ekier and Nicole Yambra. And they talked about the mindset of starting a business there and the culture and how Nigeria was a lot different than Silicon Valley. They'd both been to Silicon Valley. They really talked a lot about the, the issues, the problems that the entrepreneurs face in Nigeria. I mean, one thing that really surprised me was there's no consistent electricity there. And they said that everyone's got their own generator. Things would just shut down for you know, sometimes days. What was the feel in Kenya? What were the problems that people were facing there? Was it similar, different? We first of all addressed the mindset aspect of it. So I think this is something which did strike me when I went to East Africa and, well, perhaps less so in Rwanda, but more so in Uganda and Kenya. There's a lot of entrepreneurial activity. And you speak to almost anyone and they can talk to you about a business that they're doing. My sense is that in general, a lot of people are aspiring to have a steady job. So actually they would love to have nine to five where they can get steady income, predictable income. Entrepreneurship is often the default position that a lot of people need to have, make a living or put food on the table. That said, even if somebody does have a job, they'll almost always have a side hustle. So another way of generating income. And I think this this hustle mindset is something that almost everyone in uh, at least Uganda and Kenya that I spoke with had because there's always a looking for this next opportunity. How can, where is it possible to sort of earn a bit of extra money? So I think that that's very much, that's somewhat different to the UK at least where people are kind of bored of having a steady job and they want to sexy thing is to be an entrepreneur. So that's sort of a slight change, but also people aren't necessarily innately entrepreneurial. So for example, if they, I don't know, were to, go traveling abroad, um, go on holiday, they might not, for example, buy 10 extra blankets from India and then come and sell them back to friends and family uh, in the UK. Whereas in Kenya, my sense was a lot of people would do that. If they were abroad, they saw a good deal. 
buy some stuff there, bring it back, and then sell it locally. In terms of the, the sort of challenges, again, it's, it sort of depends on the, the types of company that you consider. So in Ethiopia, it's pretty common the power and internet can just be shut off for several weeks at a time. So I know there have been some protests. The internet was, sw- was switched off for two or three weeks. Very difficult to do that when you're running an internet business and the power goes out. Coming, having to come up with strategies to get around that is a business risk. A few other things which sort of seem like challenges, which again, you, for example, I'd never come across is the idea of addresses. So like, where does someone live? There isn't really a postal service because a lot of people don't have a, if not an official address, then a recognizable address. And just the, the cities and the country haven't really grown up with this idea of, okay, we need like a specific address to send something to. Certain startups have, have emerged to, to sort of, once for a better phrase, to address the problem, people not having addresses. And so that's quite an interesting, again, another like little thing to kind of overcome, which might not be, a, which you wouldn't think twice about in the UK or, or the US. And I think, yeah, from an infrastructure perspective, yes, you know, there would be power cuts. A lot of other places have generators. A big thing is traffic, which again, you might not think about as sort of a big thing, but especially if it rains, there's not great drainage on a lot of roads in Nairobi. The city just goes to a standstill. And I've literally spent hours sat in, sat in traffic after a downpour. But on, on the flip side, something that Kenya does have is very good phone coverage. And they also have mobile money, which is very prevalent. 90% plus of people will have a mobile money account. And so you could meet a goat herder in the middle of the savannah and pay him with mobile money. And that would be totally legit. So I think that other aspects of it are, yeah, again, a little bit different. So with everything you mentioned, or something that wasn't even mentioned, if you could change anything which would increase opportunities for startups, what would it be? I think that the common answer or the common response to something like this would be to say, you know, to give startups more funding. But for me, at least that, that feels like a, a bit of a short-term fix. I think if you think about investing, like the reason you invest is to get a return on your money. Even if you're doing impact investing, ultimately, you want to be getting some type of you know, return on your money, which means the business gets paid, which means there is some underlying purchase or consumption of goods or services that's happening. So the short answer is, I'd say, things that stimulate local demand. Yeah, a very straightforward way of doing this is direct, direct cash transfers. Um, so we've seen one of the big, the largest UBI, universal basic income experiments is happening in Western Kenya at the moment. So we'll sort of see what are the results of that, things that are going to stimulate demand. Another way is getting more international firms buying from Africa. That will then hopefully allow the money to sort of trickle down into the, into the hands of employees of those companies who then become consumers. The more they start consuming, the money circulates around the economy. And then suddenly, demand for ancillary services begins to spring up as well. The two main ways that I could see. And what about the different business models in Africa? Could you go into a little bit of detail about those? Can you go into if someone from the West wanted to go into Africa and set up operations of business, best way to go about doing that? I'm really curious from that entrepreneur's point of view and your journey. Often when people are thinking about doing, doing business in Africa, who's been in there purely for the financial potential financial reward that might come from it. Often there's something else which is which is at play. The two main things that people might go into it is to provide a product or service that isn't currently being used that they think should be. So for example, this could be electricity in rural homes or education or 
affordable transport or transit or, or something where there is a, a local product or service that's being missing. And I think the, the other motivation is to improve the livelihoods of people li- living there. Now, sometimes that is done by having access to electricity, but also it can be it can be done by giving people an income. A big distinction that I like to think about is where is the supply and where is the demand? Because when most people think about doing business in Africa, they're talking about the demand. So they're saying, okay, how can we create products and services that are going to be for the next billion consumers? This is okay, but it means you, there's, there's typically there's going to be a long lag where you might not have, or you almost certainly won't have good revenue coming into the business. So if you're looking at you know, profit and loss, you know, there's not going to be a lot of top line revenue coming into the business. And hence, you're going to need to have long-term investors who are willing to plug the gap and keep things going, or the business goes bust. Personally, I'm more interested in the improve the livelihoods of people living there through giving people an income. And so I like Western demand and local supply. For me, like the number one impact thing you can do is to give people, give lots of people a steady income. And that way they can buy more things. So local demand, then that sort of you know, it helps the local economy, but also it means people can buy medical services and, and lots of things there. When I was in Kenya, I was working for a, a B2B company where I was selling internationally. So I sort of sold in eight different African countries and combination of European and US companies. It is so much easier, as I'm sure you can, doesn't take too much logic to, to get to this uh, conclusion, but it's so much easier if you can pitch your client, pitch your business to Western clients who are going to be fine paying $20,000 for a service. Because to get an equivalent amount of revenue locally, it's possible, but it's a lot, lot harder. I therefore like to sort of decouple these two ideas of are you there to provide a local... Are you having local demand? Are you trying to do it locally? If the main thing you want is to increase the incomes, go and sell elsewhere in the world and then funnel that money back into East Africa, well, into Africa in whichever way seems best, either through employing local people or through buying from local suppliers or anything that can be getting international money into, into the economy. So that's sort of generally how I think about business models. Yeah, the one If you're able to run a business where you can start having clients that pay $20,000, you can do that from day one and you don't need investors and you can still be paying a lot of people in East Africa, a lot of good money to do that. And it's a sort of slightly quicker way of, of getting things going. In terms of thinking about what types of entrepreneurs or people well-placed to run a business in Africa, I think the ones that I can sort of see succeeding have a combination of long-term horizon, they have on-the-ground expertise, and also they have an international worldview. All these points are, are flexible, and, but I think if you can find some category of people or person who has the, an overlap with those three, that's really good. If we sort of think through this logically, first set of people you might think about are, are expats. So people who, like myself, grew up in the UK or grew up in America or Europe, don't particularly have any roots in Africa, but I'm very interested in sort of being part of the development and seeing what I can do. So you know, for me, I've I've got the international worldview. I've lived in different places. It's possible to get the expertise by partnering with people on the ground. But often, there's not a willingness to save, let's say, for 10 years. You're probably going to need to commit to 10 years living on the ground in Africa in order to have a, a long term. So sort of expats are good, but they, there's a sense of sort of coming in and going, which again, it's not bad. It's good to get those sort of injections of insights. But it's not necessarily sort of a long-term solution. You then might look at purely local teams. So here people have got the long-term horizon because they live there uh, and they have the on-the-ground expertise. But sometimes it can be difficult to have the international perspective. 
Now, of course, this can be addressed by somebody from the country going and studying abroad. That's often enough to get an international worldview or to some degree consuming content online. But there is just the sort of reality is from speaking to different companies, it would be very obvious when there is somebody there who has had the international worldview and just how different businesses operate compared to somebody who's just sort of thinking in, in local terms. The category that I think is probably most exciting is a diaspora. So a lot of people I know have, for example, family ties in Africa, but grew up in the UK or elsewhere. And, and often they want to invest back home. So if you sort of, this is typically, I don't know, maybe second generation in the case of the UK, you know, went to UK schools or moved when they were a kid, but they've still got, you know, aunties and uncles and grandparents who live back in, in East Africa or in Africa. So I think here what's great is you have this, this international perspective. There's often this long-term horizon because ultimately a lot of people want to, to sort of go back and help develop the, the home country. And often they've got good connections to people on the ground to make it happen. One trend which I really hope to see more and more of is people is diaspora or average, which way you want to define it. But you know, people who have roots in Africa, but have been living abroad and are looking to use their wealth and insights and opportunities in a way that can develop businesses and to develop the economy. Let's go into even more detail. If I'm a startup here or in Europe and I want to go into Africa, what should I know? What research should I do? What are the first steps moving forward? The first thing that I'd be thinking about is to really do your research and spend a few weeks, maybe a month or a couple of months, and just trying to suss out the local, the local business scene and just sort of really understanding how you can best solve the problems on the ground. You know, it's almost like if you've got a you know, good opportunity, you know, if you've got a good company and it solves a, a you know, universal human problem, the chances are that it will also in some form apply in, yeah, apply in Africa or parts of the world. As an example, with Uber, Uber is quite popular in a lot of East African cities. It's been a big area of growth. The core app remains. I would, if I open my Uber app in Nairobi, it's the same. It's basically, you know, it feels the same as if I'm doing it in London or in New York. But the Uber Kenya team have had to modify it a bit. So for example, with, with payments, they had to allow cash mobile money to be done on there because a lot of people who were using it didn't have a debit card, for example. They've had to include in-app calling because drivers don't necessarily trust the location that comes up. It can be really quite strange for somebody who's just arrived in Nairobi to open the Uber app. They can say sort of set their destination, you know, set their location of where they are, and they enter their location of where they want to get to. And then they match with the driver. Within five seconds, they get a call and the driver asks, where are you and where do you want to go? And it can be a bit strange because you're like, well, I've literally just put this in the app. But because there are, going back to this idea of sort of addresses and perhaps not trusting the quality of the devices, or it's just easier for people to drivers to pick up and call. And so having, I don't know if it's been modified specifically for East Africa, but that's definitely a, a feature that I saw evolving over time, um, which again, if you're sat in Silicon Valley, then you're like, well, why do we need to have in-app calls? Because everything's done over, you know, all the routine, et cetera, happens, happens automatically. So yeah, a few things like that. It's not to say there's not the opportunity, but I'd really just be thinking, okay, we've got what's the core idea. Let's take a first principles approach um, to building it up. And then I think the other main thing is to say is treat each country differently. You know, when people talk about Asia, Afghanistan and Malaysia are both Asian countries. There's a lot of difference and diversity between countries and the same applies in Africa. Simply having a 
this is going to work here. This is therefore going to work in these other 53 countries. It won't work as much as it would be lovely if it did. If I was the, the international company coming in, I'd be thinking, okay, can I get a fixer in each country to sort of understand the lay of the land? Again, hopefully there are going to be some commonalities in, in how it's done, but it shouldn't be, yeah, it shouldn't be a given in that way. So where do you see the opportunities in Africa, in tech, in the next few years? The main area of interest that there is so far has been in fintech. That provides the biggest sort of pan-African opportunity where you can pull together local demand and you can sort of consolidate it so you get a decent addressable market. So if you're sort of a payments company, if you to look just at the Ugandan market or the Kenyan market or the Ghanaian market, can't really say there's a big payoff here. But if you were to bundle things together, and in theory, if you're looking at things like international payment, there might be some commonalities or might be easier to, to sort of operate across the continent. That's an area where there's yeah, lots of, been lots of interest. I think it, it sort of depends on the region that you look at in Africa. But on the whole, around sort of 70% of the population still work in agriculture. And so I'd say anything that can be done to improve the efficiency or you know, improve the productivity in that region, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of interest. So things around you know, smart water filters or, sent, or micro sensors or using satellite imaging to predict weather forecasts. And, and put on a personal perspective, I'm, you know, I'm sort of interested in where can you consolidate demand? Where can you give farmers or people working in agriculture consistent, predictable income? And that sort of unlocks the whole chain of being able to invest in fertilizers and all sorts of things. So I'd be saying, yeah, lots of things in sort of agriculture and improving that aspect. There's probably quite a lot that can be done in health. Now we're seeing lots of, you know, smartphones have been on the continent now for coming up to 10 years. And lots of smart young developers and hackers and coders are able to look at this Android phone, take it apart, figure out, okay, how can we use this to solve local problems? So for example, do malaria testing, et cetera. So I think there's probably quite a lot that can be done on the ground where you really have to you know, understand the local context. A while back, I did some sort of first principles thinking on it. And I thought, you know, there's probably quite an interesting case for 3D printing in Africa. The reason being is that there's not the best roads. The ability to, do, to overcome the issues that come with logistics. A very famous company that started in Africa is one called Zipline, where they drones to deliver blood to the hospitals. So let's say that you are a rural hospital and somebody needs a blood transfusion. It doesn't make sense for you to keep, or it's impossible for you to keep enough blood in the hospital based on the, the population size. And in order for you to get blood to come from the central city, you know, the big city, it will take several hours to go up and down the winding hills and somebody's on a motorbike to sort of get there. This company, Zipline, they put blood packets on a drone, fly the drone out, and the blood packet gets released and it you know, becomes safely delivered to the, uh, to the hospital. Then it's used on the patient. So that is a way of overcoming the trendy phrase is to call it leapfrogging, where you basically said, okay, well, if you were to try and start, Zipline was to try and sort of have that business proposition in America, you'd be like, okay, that's fine, but I could probably get Amazon Prime to deliver it me in an hour. So it's not, you know, the, the, the roads are clear. There's a lot of infrastructure in place to actually do it. There's less of a business need. Whereas in Africa, in this situation, it's like 10x better than the this, than this solution. So it's like being able to get traction. I think there might be something similar in 3D printing. There's a lot of sort of long supply chains and a lot of expensive logistics that happen in 
transporting materials. So I think some sort of model of 3D printer, a 3D printer in different communities or different towns and villages might be a better way. Sam, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been an absolutely amazing interview. I've learned 10x my knowledge before on East Africa. If anyone wants to find out more information about yourself, listen to your podcast, what's the best way to go about doing it? The short version is I have a, a website, www.samfloy.com, where you can sort of read various things that I write. There are you know, various blog posts that you can look through. And then also subscribe to the East Africa Business Podcast, which is the podcast I did about business in East Africa. As you can tell, a very imaginative name. There are about 80, 80 or so episodes on there with a you know, whole range of tech and non-tech industries and businesses. Yeah, do go through there and, and see what you find interesting. And then, yeah get through the, the website or just sam at samfloy.com. Feel free to give me an email. I'm always happy to, to talk to people about what it's like. And yeah, I, I was very fortunate to have lots of people who are willing to talk to me about the region before I moved there. And so I'm the ability to then pay it forward. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And for our listeners, please go on iTunes, write a review, like and share this episode. It encourages us to create more content. And with that, Sam, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.